morning. We'd like to welcome you to church this morning. Please stand and join us as we begin our service of worship by singing our praises to God.
Please pray with me. Our Holy Father, you are everything we need. You provide for us. You teach us. You love us. You are the Almighty God, the creator of the universe. And yet you care for each one of us, these small, frail creatures. Thank you for loving us. Make us ever more aware of your abiding presence with us right now and always. And may we come with hearts and minds open to receive your words of love, grace, and truth. It is in your most holy name that we pray. Amen. David prays the Lord in the presence of... It's so-
You may be seated. David praised the Lord in, his, in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generally, generously as this? Everything comes from you, and what we have given you only comes from what was in your hand. We'd like to invite the ushers forward to receive our morning tithes and offerings. Rise, my soul will rest in your embrace. For 
I'm sitting in the prayer room of Wesleyan Church headquarters. You will note behind me a map. And a map with post-it notes, those are prayer requests. Today I bring you a large prayer request. And that prayer request is for the suffering people in Sierra Leone and Liberia, West Africa. Why do we bring that to you today? Because the Wesleyan Church has been in Sierra Leone literally over 100 years, and Liberia less years than that. And I want to bring you our family, our Wesleyan family, of some 300 churches and over 50,000 Wesleyan, your Wesleyan brothers and sisters. They are suffering. They are suffering under this Ebola crisis at this time. The outbreak is focused in one of the areas in Sierra Leone where most Wesleyans live. I'm appealing to you today to pray. God can heal. God can deliver. But at the same time, he's also calling us to do what we can do to prevent this disease and to stop it. The Wesleyan Church has a hospital. And the hospital is in Kamakui, which is in the north part of the country. This hospital services over 100,000 people. The only hospital for these folks. And at present, we do not even have a doctor in this hospital. Therefore, I'm calling on you to give. We need to give so that we can supply this hospital. But I also want to tell you that we have uh, medical personnel from the United States that are going. Next week, Carrie Jo Kendi Kane is going. She's a medical person. Carrie Jo grew up in Sierra Leone. She knows the language. And she's going directly to the hospital to help the hospital to be prepared with supplies that we want to send with her with the funds that you are giving. After that, Dr. Diane Foley will be going. Dr. Diane Foley will be working with Usman Forna, the national superintendent, and World Hope out in the communities doing training and helping people to prevent this horrible, deadly disease. You've seen it on TV. You've seen the need. And I want to tell you that today the Wesleyan Church and World Hope are standing together with their Wesleyan brothers and sisters in Sierra Leone and Liberia. Will you please stand with us? And we're praying that during this time people may see the gospel of Jesus in new ways and that out of evil may come good. In other words, we overcome evil with good. And out of this evil, we will see people come to Jesus Christ and love him for who he is. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for who you are. And may God bless us as we work together for his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We're going to spend some time praying together about this need and other needs connected to us. We also have an opportunity tomorrow. You may have seen if you looked at the bulletin. Uh, to pray. We're doing a combined church and college prayer event from 8 a.m. tomorrow to 8 p.m. And uh, we'll be focusing at the uh, prayer chapel in the basement of Wesley Chapel up on campus. There will be people there, staff in the church, deacons uh, from the college who will be there throughout those 12 hours. And we want to invite you to come and pray for as little or as much as you can. You can feel free to come five minutes and leave, or if you want to stay for a whole hour, or you want to come back multiple times. But we want to pray. We want to pray for these concerns. There are a lot of needs in our community and in the broader community that need, people need our prayers. We have folks in our church, people at the college, 
uh, students who are going through some pretty difficult health issues. And there are uh, emotional issues. There are relationship issues. All kinds of things that we're dealing with. And we just had this burden between the church and the college to pray together. And so we want to invite you to uh, find some time tomorrow if you can. Stop into the prayer chapel in the basement of Wesley Chapel and we'll join our hearts together in prayer. Today as we pray, sometimes, sometimes it helps us to uh, the posture in which we pray. And maybe as we pray today, you would like to come and use the altar rail as the place where you offer your prayers. If so, please come and join me. Father, we want to be just frank and honest with you today. Far too often, our lives feel messed up, out of control, failures. And we come today acknowledging our sin acknowledging the times when we have rejected you, the times when we have chosen our own way instead of your way, and we come asking for your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness. We thank you for hearing our prayers. Father, we pray not only for the needs that we sense in our hearts, but also the, the very practical, real life needs that are all around us. We think, Father, of the burdens and the concerns of people in this church and in people connected to us. Think of people who are grieving. We just heard this morning that a friend of many of us, Al Rain, died yesterday. And we pray for his family. We ask that your grace would be upon them. We pray for others who are struggling with grief and loss. We pray for the health needs that are present in our lives and in this church and in others who are a part of our lives. We pray for Bruce and Alton, for Matt and Dick, for Isla and Bev, for Edna and Linda and Micah, and for Bill and Crystal and Emily and ask for your healing grace upon each of them. Fathers, we've watched this video about the Ebola virus. We've seen the devastation that has been caused, continues to be. We pray for an end to the virus. We pray for solutions. We pray for people who can help bring this in and we pray for your protection and for your healing. We pray for your church that your people would be a presence in the midst of this time of great difficulty. We pray for your church in other places of the world where where our brothers and sisters face persecution and opposition and threats. Things that we know very little, if anything, about and we ask that you would protect them 
and give them grace that they need. We pray, Father, for the ongoing pressure and violence from ISIS and other groups. Lord, we pray you'd bring an end to this evil. We pray that you would you would reveal your power in a miraculous way. We pray that you would bring peace where it seems there is no hope for peace. We pray for the leaders of nations, including our own. They would make wise decisions, decisions that would bring peace. Father, we pray for those who are in your service in places of the world. And this morning, we think especially of Mikanora Suman. And ask that you would guide them as they look to the next step in their lives of service for you around the world. Lord, we know that there are so many needs. Needs in our own lives, needs in the lives of those we love, this world. Thank you for hearing our prayers today. And for doing more than we could dream or imagine as you answer in the way that you know is best. We offer our prayers in the strong, powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who has promised to be with us. Promised to return for us. We offer our prayers in his name. Amen. Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of the slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land a land flowing with milk and honey. The home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Parasites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israels has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. 
So now, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We invite you to take a moment, share a word of greeting with each other as you stand and just say hi, introduce yourself to someone you don't know as we continue worship. Good morning, how are you? Good. I don't think I know you. Ben. Ben, nice to meet you, Ben. Does that make you think of anyone? So last spring, I said to the church, in the fall, I'd like to preach some sermons about questions that you have. What would you like to hear a sermon about? I thought, this is a great idea. I've since second-guessed myself about that idea. Wow. Now, I did get some questions that, you know, you kind of say... Yeah, I won't be dealing with that. There are always, you know, there's always wise guys, right? Uh, you know, the questions of like, uh, how does a shepherd count his flock without falling asleep? Um, think about that a second, right? Yeah. Actually, not a bad question. If, if the professor can, on Gilligan's Island can make a radio out of a coconut, how come he can't fix the hole in the boat? Just something to think about, right? And why is it they go into a bank, the door's wide open, and the pins are chained to the counter? I've always wondered about that. You can never take those pins home with you. The big question that someone asked me was, why can't the Chicago Cubs win the World Series? If you're a Cubs fan, you're lamenting right now. I can feel it. But there were lots of good questions. In fact, lots of hard questions, difficult questions. I'm thinking to myself, what have I gotten myself into here with some of the questions? I'm not going to be able to address all the questions. I got more than 100 back, which was awesome. Thank you. 
Thanks for, for being willing to participate. The bookmarks that were in your bulletin this morning, there's some more in the back, feel free to take them, are a list of the questions that I'm going to address over the next few months. And uh, hopefully something at least of your question will be in one of those sermons. They're, they're hard questions to answer many times. And it's interesting that when you look at the history of the church, the church has tended to discourage questions. For some reason, people asking questions makes us nervous. We, we don't want people to question. We just want people to go along with the, tie, with the flow. Just do what we tell you and don't ask anything. It's a lot simpler that way. And in fact, you can get yourself in trouble in the church asking questions. You look at his, the history of the church, and there have been people who've gotten in great trouble. Some of them lost their lives because they dared to question. And so we create this mindset that not only does the church not want to ask, should, we shouldn't ask questions in the church, God doesn't want us to ask questions. And nothing could be further from the truth. God welcomes our questions. That's how we learn. You've been, in a, you know, sitting in a class, how many times have you had a teacher, professor say, now look, if you have a question, ask it. If you don't know, you don't know. And what do we do? We sit there and we don't ask the question, why? We don't want to look stupid. I've been in class, I know what it feels like. I've got this question, I have no idea what's being, what the teacher's talking about. Am I going to raise my hand and say that? No, I'm too embarrassed. And God says, don't be afraid to ask questions. Now understand, we might not get the answer to the questions the way, what we want. Sometimes we ask questions implying this is the answer, right? And more often than not, when we ask these kinds of questions about God and life with him, I suspect the answers will be different than what we might have assumed. Not only did we ask you as people here in worship in the congregation to ask questions, we also went to our children in the Sunday school classes. And we asked them what questions they would like. What questions they have? What would they like to hear? I've got to be honest with you. There's some profound questions that children ask. It's no wonder Jesus said you should become like a child to enter the kingdom. And one of those questions that struck me as soon as I read it was this. What color is God? What color is God? Now, I suspect... What they meant was, if God had skin, what would be the color of his skin? Now, we know Jesus came, God in flesh. Most of us, when we think of Jesus living on earth and we picture him, he looks probably, for the majority of us, white. He probably wasn't. He was Middle Eastern. But that's our image, the paintings, the pictures, the drawings, and what comes to our mind. That's the image we have of God. And I suspect that probably when we think about the actual color of God, he probably looks like the same color as our skin, whatever that may be. But here's the deeper question that this 
that this question about the color of God triggered for me. It's not just about what might God's skin look like, but it's what is God like? Because the reality is, when we think about God, the image that comes to our mind, more often than not, looks like us. When we think about God, we think about a God who looks like us. If, we're, if we are American, he looks like whatever we think of as American. If we, if we are Korean, he probably looks Korean. If we're Chinese, he probably looks Chinese. If we're Nigerian, he looks Nigerian. That's just the way we think. That's how our minds work. That's natural. The problem is the image of what God is like and his character and his nature does the same. We do the same thing. And when we start thinking about what is God's nature, what is God's character, what is God like, the image we create looks like us. Now, granted, it is probably a bigger, stronger image of us, but it's still based on us. It's us to the 28,000th power, but it's still rooted in us. And that's a problem. Because as the pastor of another generation, theologian, writer, A.W. Tozer said, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And all of the rest of the questions that we're going to deal with over the next few months, are going to come back to our view of God. All of them. It's important. Our view of God is significant. It is vitally important. And if we are creating an image of God that looks like us, there's going to be problems. Because you and I have issues. Harry Emerson Fosdick, for a long time, was years, was pastor of Riverside Church in New York City, near Columbia University, and often students would come and talk with him. And one day, a student burst into his office and said, Dr. Fosdick, I don't believe in God anymore. Fosdick said, okay. He said, tell me about this God you don't believe in. And the student started to relate all of these things that he thought about God. And when he got done, Fosdick said, well, I think we're in the same boat because I don't believe in that God either. And we have to, somehow we have, to, we have to break the mold of the God we've created. Now, we have this God because of sin in our lives and in the world. David Siemens talks about the fact that we live with damaged receptors. At creation, when God brought Adam and Eve into the world, they had perfect communication with God. God spoke to them. They understood God perfectly. They understood who God was There was was no twisting and turning, but because of sin entering the world, our own sin that we commit and just sin in a broken, fallen world and all the stuff that that comes because of sin, we now have damaged receptors and the message doesn't get through to us. The message is skewed and turned and twisted and broken. And out of that, we create this false image of God, a false image of God that more often than not looks like us. And the only way to solve that is to remind ourselves of who God truly is. 
And the reality that Scripture paints for us, if, if, if the Old Testament particularly says anything to us about God, it is telling us this. God is completely other than us. Period. God is not an extended form of us. God is not a stronger, bigger version of us. God is completely other than us. Period. That's why scripture talks so much about his holiness. When we say that God is holy, we are saying that God is perfect. And you and I know absolutely nothing about being perfect, right? When we throw that word around, what we really mean is that's pretty good. It's hard for us to grasp perfection. God is perfect. Everything God thinks is perfect. Everything God does is perfect. Everything God, every way in which God relates to us is perfect. It's hard to wrap our minds around that because we have no concept of perfect. But God is. When you read the Old Testament, one of the things that it tells us about how people think of God is that when we treat God as common, we are profaning his name. One of the worst things anyone can do as you read through the Old Testament is to treat God as if he is like everyone else. He is other than us. The psalmist writes in chapter 50, verse 21, he he says, you thought I was like you. And you thought you were like me. You're not. I am other than you. That's what makes him God. And it's not just his holiness, it's his power. His power is other than us as well. You know, we run into things every day that, uh, that limit us and stop us and prevent us from doing what we want to do. All of the time, we run into obstacles that we can do absolutely nothing about. God never faces that issue. God may choose in his holy wisdom to say, I'm going to respond this way instead of that way, but he is never forced to do anything. Nothing can block the power of God. In this passage we read from Exodus, he's talking about bringing his people out of Egypt. As you read through Exodus, he he does. He, He brings them out of slavery, out of Egypt. He rescues them. And he does it, as he says, with his mighty hand. And much of the rest of the Old Testament is describing God doing that. Why is it that God keeps reminding Israel, remember, I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. He keeps reminding them that over and over and over again. That however powerful Pharaoh was, nothing compared to me. However great their gods may have been, nothing compared to me. Why does he keep reminding them of that? Because they need to understand that the God who defeated the Egyptians and defeated Pharaoh and their greatest enemy is still the greatest all-powerful one in their lives as they keep going forward. And you and I need to remember that. You know, I listen to so many conversations among Christians as we talk about what's going on in the world. And, and quite frankly, I'm, 
I'm sometimes taken back by the things that people say because there is this sense of I mean, people wringing their hands and, and, you know, in despair and agony. And these are people who follow God, who are followers of Christ. And we act as though God isn't all-powerful. We act as though the things that are going on in the world are too much for God, too great for God, too big for God. And we just hope that maybe some way he can find a way to do something about it. No wonder J.B. Phillips' book in the 50s, he titled, Your God is Too Small. We worship this puny little God. Why? Because we have created the God that we worship in our own image. He looks like us. He acts like us. He thinks like us. He is us. No wonder he appears powerless. That's not the God we worship. We worship a God who is powerful, completely other than us in his power. And what's so fascinating to me about this God who is holy and all-powerful is that he also says, I'm going to be perfectly faithful and present in your lives. Really? What kind of an almighty being would do that? I mean, who in the world? I mean, you think about people that are famous in our world. We want to hang around with them. They probably aren't that interested in hanging out with us. But God says, you're my people. I will be with you. It's one of the most repeated statements throughout all of these scriptures. I am with you. He says, tells Moses, when you go, I will be with you. When you guys come out of Egypt, I will be with you. He says to him, he even identifies himself with people. He says, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I think that hopefully this makes sense, but I had this image in my mind of God and Abraham walking into a room. There's a guy there who knows Abraham, has no idea who God is. He looks at Abraham and says hello, looks at God, says, I don't know who this is, and God says, I'm with him. That's how he identifies himself. I'm with Abraham. I'm with Isaac. I'm with Jacob. These are my people. I hang out with them. These are the people by whom you will know me. What kind of an almighty God does that? The kind of God who wants to be with us. The kind of God who is faithful to us every moment of every day. The kind of God who loves us. Bonhoeffer said, love doesn't define God. God defines love. It is God himself who, who explains to us what love is. When we get to 1 John, and in that letter he, he says, look, this is love. Not that you love God, but that God loved you. God is love. And we twist that around so often. As Craig Barnes says, there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. There is nothing we can do to make God love us less. Because his very nature, his very character is to love us. You know, one day it struck me that God's love is, it feels a little bit nebulous. There is a sense in which we think, well, God has to love us. Again, it goes back to our image, imaging God, and you know, making God in my own image. 
And we talk about loving each other and we do it and sometimes we do it begrudgingly. What struck me one day is that God doesn't just love us. The God who wants to be with us, he likes us. He likes us. We are, he doesn't just tolerate us. He doesn't just put up with us. He doesn't love us because he has to. He likes us. He wants to hang out with us. He wants to be with us. He loves being, having us in his presence. He likes being around us. And nothing we can ever do will change that. It is the grace of God in the midst of his love that keeps calling us back to himself. What The God of second chances. Actually, the God of millionth chances. In Jeremiah 31, the people have gone into exile because they have rejected God so many times you can't even count them. And you would think God would say, okay, that's it. Because that's what we would do, right? I mean, we give up on each other all the time. We say, okay, I'm drawing the line here. If you step over it one more time, that's it. And what does God say? One more chance. One more chance. One more chance. And he says to the Israelites, I'm going to bring you back from exile. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to wipe the slate clean. And we're going to start all over again. You're my people. I love you. I like you. I want to be with you. And what do they do? They keep rejecting him. And what does he do? He keeps drawing them to himself. It's really the picture that Jesus paints in the the story of the prodigal son. Or as someone has said, the prodigal sons, it should be. This image that God creates of a father who represents God is so other than anything that people have ever seen. This father is willing to humble himself. He is willing to give of himself. For his sons. Both of his sons reject him. The one runs off and wastes his inheritance. The other one stays at home and rejects him. But they both reject him. And what does he do? He, when, the, when the one son who's been away comes home. He runs and greets him and throws a party. And to the son who is the good son. Which probably more than likely is representing you and me who's pouting and whining and complaining and angry at the father, he goes to him too. He says to him, look, you're my son. I love you. Come on. And fathers in that culture don't do either of those things. They don't humble themselves. These sons have no power over their father. They're not making him do this. He wants to. He loves to. And the same God is calling you and me. It doesn't matter how many times we've rejected him. I, I, I am certain that every one of us sitting here today has something in our lives, maybe more than one thing, but at least one thing in our lives that we keep failing about. We all do. And we keep failing and repenting and failing and repenting. And maybe it's 
lying or cheating or maybe it's some kind of sexual sin or maybe it's a habit that we can't break or maybe it's anger and bitterness and our refusal to forgive. And we keep coming to God and saying, forgive me. And he does. And then we go right back to it again. And something in the back of our mind says, God's going to give up on me. Maybe God's already given up on me. But the scriptures tell us God never gives up on us. Never. It doesn't matter how many times we fail. He never gives up on us. He is always calling us to himself. Always running to us with open arms. Let me love you. Let me forgive you. Let me restore you. And the next time we fail, he comes running to us again. And the next time we fail, he comes running to us again. It's because he is so other than us. We would never do that. We have our limits. God's grace is unlimited. And the response he calls, for which he's calling from us is to let him be God. To surrender, to trust. It's hard because surrender and trust is risky. We don't want to risk We want to shape God in our image. We want to make God into a little box. Just give us some rules and then we'll be fine. And God says, no, I'm not going to mess with the rules. I just want you to trust me. I want you to surrender to me. Give up your image of me that you've created. And trust that my image is so much better. See, our image leads to bondage. Just look at... The, the religious leaders of first century Palestine. They can't imagine that God could be like Jesus. And what are their lives like? They're bondage. Jesus keeps saying, I want to give you freedom. I want to give you freedom to love and to be loved. Freedom to, to know my joy. Freedom to know my peace. Freedom to know everything about me in a way that you couldn't dream or imagine. If you'll just surrender and trust. And we can fight God for control. We always do. But it's sort of like, it's sort of like arguing that two plus two doesn't equal four. We can argue all of our lives about it. But the truth of the matter is, if you've got two things and you add two things, you're going to have four things. And God is who he says he is. God is other than us. The question is not, is that true or not? The question is, are we going to acknowledge it, surrender to it, and trust him? And decide that we, want to, we don't want to live in bondage anymore. We don't want to live in bondage to our warped perception of God that looks like us. We want to live in the freedom of the true God who... Is him. That's why when he, Moses says, Who do I tell them sent me? He says, I am who I am. 
I will be who I will be is another way to translate that. There's an old legend that people for years knew about in the, the mountains of Nepal. About a God that uh, was up in the mountains made out of wax. And the people would make pilgrimages up the mountain to the cool air there and worship at this shrine. After a number of years, the people got to thinking, wouldn't it be easier and better if we brought this God out of the cold air of the mountains and down into the warmer air of the valleys? We wouldn't have to trudge up the mountain. We could worship a lot more often. It'd just be better. And so they did. They brought him down into the, into the village. What they didn't think about was that the air in the village was much warmer than the air on the mountain, and the wax began to sag in the heat. It bothered them at first, and they realized, hey, this is an opportunity. Some of them felt like the, the face of the, of the God was too stern, and so they reshaped it into an image that was much more appealing. Some of them didn't like the structure of the, of the, the statue's body, and so they reshaped it. They made it look much better. But what happened was as they began to reshape this image, it continued to sag in the heat. But once they, had be, once they had reshaped it, they felt a lot more comfortable touching it. And they gradually began to pull off pieces of wax, take them home, use it to heat their homes and cook their food. And the villagers would continue to do this until that one day they came and the wax was gone and so was the God. And Craig Barnes, in telling this story, says... When we shape God in our own image, we end up with no God at all. We just end up worshiping ourselves. It's a lot easier to feel like we're in control. Life is more comfortable with the God that we can put into a box, that we can make into a shape and an image especially when we consider the alternative of our God who is so other than us and mysterious at times and difficult to really pin down. But don't we want to worship something that is so beyond us? Worship a God who is perfect, holy, powerful, loving, full of grace, with us. He's calling us to surrender our human images of Him and trust who He says He is. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing in us. What's your image of God? Father, in this moment of silence, help us to ponder, to see the false images of God that we have created of you. Give us a a clearer glimpse of who you really are.
Thank you for loving us, caring enough to want to set us free, give us life abundant. Open our eyes and our hearts, our minds and our spirits. Through Christ Jesus, amen. Please stand and sing with us. Your kindness leads us to repentance. Your goodness draws us to your side. Your mercy calls us to be like you. Your favor is our delight. Every day we'll awaken our praise and pour out a song for the Lord. you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.